Corner French Ministries presents an in-depth study on the controversial gift of tongues. Please enjoy the study. Shabbat Shalom. All right. Given the fact that Shavuot is upon us, I wanted to break away from our Galatians study for just a brief period and present a special two-part, maybe, I don't know, maybe three-part, <laughs> for sure two parts. I just wanted to break away from Galatians for a minute to uh, spend a time uh, on, on a message that pertains to Shavuot. It's a subject that many people have been asking me to address for a long time, and I just haven't had the time. Well, with Shavuot coming now, I am going to take this time, this opportunity, to talk about it. And uh, that message is the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues. Before I break into this message, because of the controversial nature of the topic, I mean, passions run high. They run hot on whatever side you will fall upon. If you believe in speaking in tongues, you, you, you come from a spirit-filled background, you stand on that side and you cling to it. But if you don't, then you find yourself on the complete other side. And it really seems to be a gulf. There's a gulf affixed between the two. All right? So considering the controversial nature of this topic, I think it's important that I share with you a little bit about my background so that you know where I come from, my religious upbringing. When I was about six years old, my mom and dad, they got saved. My dad, interesting story, I'm not going to go too far, but he was a rock and roll star type deal, traveling the country in a rock band. He was the lead singer. And my aunt, she was a Christian, and she had been witnessing to him. And over a period of time, he finally agreed to accept the Lord as his personal Lord and Savior, accepted Jesus into his heart. At which point, we immediately, of course, he, he quit the rock band. We started attending church. Well, it wasn't long after that, still being six years old, that I accepted the Lord in my heart, that I literally made a commitment. You know, I don't remember a whole lot from my childhood, but this, this, this very thing I remember vividly. I can still remember the pastor standing at the front of the church, and he had gave a message on salvation, and he gave an altar call at the end, and he said, if anyone wants to receive Jesus into their heart, if they want to make commitment to him, come forward. Being six years old, sitting, you know, little guy, probably weighed 30 pounds, uh, sitting in, my, in, in the pew, I can remember my heart burning. When he said, do you want Jesus? My heart burned the minute he said that. And I knew, being six years old, I knew that's what I want. I want Jesus. So I asked my parents if they would excuse me and let me out of the pew because I'm going to go accept the Lord. To which they responded quite well. A pleasant surprise, if you will. Well, shortly thereafter, my parents, they joined, maybe you heard of it, they joined the Jesus People movement. Very evangelistic movement. And, you know, I got to say, they're key. They're huge in the, in, in the role. They played a huge role in the life of many believers today because I can trace a lot of the believers today back to the Jesus people movement, back to the time of that, that's when they had accepted the Lord. 
It was, uh, it's, you know, the 70s, the late 60s, the 70s, and, you know, it started to curtail in the early 80s. But this was a very exciting time for Christianity. It was a time of revival, okay? There's a lot of hippies coming out of, you know, total abominations. They're accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. So uh, we, my, my, my parents, they were, uh, as far as that movement goes, my dad got really heavily involved in street ministry. Jesus' people at the time was on Hennepin Avenue. And you need to understand something. Hennepin Avenue is not what it is today. Okay, for those of you who are familiar, uh, who, who, who walked the streets of Hennepin in the, in the 70s and early 80s. Well, shortly thereafter, when I was about 10 years old, we moved out of the Jesus People movement. Like I said, in the early 80s, it began to die, began to disperse. And my parents decided to settle down in an Assemblies of God church. In these realms, we call it for short, the short form AG, Assemblies of God. Now, if you're not familiar with what an AG church is, the AG movement is really a part of the Pentecostal movement. And if you want to know where their emphasis lies, just think about the name for a second. Pentecostal. Okay, go to Acts 2, and you will find the birth of this movement came from Acts chapter 2. All right? So, from about age 10 to roughly 25 years old, I spent my time in the Assemblies of God Church. This is my background. This is my roots. This is my religious upbringing. Now, for those of you who have never attended a Pentecostal church, or even a church that identifies itself as a spirit-filled church, you're going to be quick to notice that your experience there might be different than, say, going to a conservative Baptist church, of which I can attest to because as a uh, when I was younger, I actually went to a Baptist private school, very conservative Baptist private school. See, let me explain. What you'll typically find in a Pentecostal or Spirit-filled church is that when you go to the service, you discover something. The people there talk a little funny. They don't talk like other people or other experiences you've had in church settings. They talk in foreign languages, as it would appear, or unintelligible languages. What is known as, in the Greek circles, glossolalia. Glossolalia. Glossolalia means speaking in tongues. So, I grew up in an environment where a heavy emphasis was placed upon this gift of tongues. You know, I can't remember one Sunday going by without somebody speaking in tongues as I grew up in the church. In fact, every single Sunday, I can tell you, as the pastor, he had a chair that sat across from the pulpit. And every time he got up, every single Sunday, as he got up from the chair, to the, to the time he walked up to the pulpit, he had spoke in tongues. Sunday after Sunday, he would do this. You would come to the praise and worship service, and there would be individuals who would be speaking in tongues or praising God in tongues. When prayer was offered up, some people would pray in tongues. Even at times, I can remember the pastor, he would lead the entire congregation in this very emotional uprising, this crying out, encouraging all the congregants to lift up their voices, praise God, give him praise, at which, at times, the entire community would erupt in tongues. It's really quite something to behold if you're not used to this environment. This was the norm for me, though. This was my environment growing up in a church. I never batted an eyelash at it. My friends, some of my friends spoke in tongues. You know, I was taught at a very young age that the gift of tongues was a sign. 
It's a sign given to those who have received the Holy Spirit. And those who didn't speak in tongues, they simply hadn't received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, why there would be such a strong emphasis placed upon the gift of tongues and these circles, because absence of such is considered absence of the Holy Spirit. Absence of speaking in tongues is absence of the gift. The gift, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who haven't experienced what I have experienced, growing up in a Pentecostal church or spirit-filled church, there's something I want you to understand, and that is this. The people that I have witnessed over the years who practice tongues, they take it very, very seriously. It's not a joke to them. They're not doing it to be funny, and they're not doing it to scare you, to frighten you, okay? They take it very, very seriously. It is something very spiritual to them, and they see it as a conduit to speaking with God. Now, many believers who practice speaking in tongues, they're going to tell you that speaking in tongues is instrumental in their prayer life. When they go into their prayer closet, they often will pray in tongues. They feel this is the best way to connect to God. You know, it's been said that, you know, uh, when they do this, and the, and the reasons they do this is because at times they feel that maybe there's something that they don't understand that they're supposed to be praying for. And in that moment, they're going to speak in tongues because the Spirit will intercede. Or maybe it's something they don't know how to pray for. Therefore, they pray in tongues, and the Holy Spirit will cover that. It'll bring, it'll bring shed light onto it in their conduit as they speak to God. This just gives you a little bit of background into the world that I grew up in. Now, having said that, I want to begin today by asking the most basic of questions regarding speaking in tongues, or glossolalia. And that is this question. Is the gift of tongues legitimate? Is this gift really of God? Or is it some concocted doctrine that is not scriptural, a total fabrication and perversion of scripture? Is that what glossolalia is? Well, let me tell you, if you've ever picked up the Bible, specifically the New Testament, and, you've, and you will know, Beyond a shadow of a doubt, and you actually read the New Testament, you will be able to attest to, without question, that glossolalia is legitimate. 100% legitimate. And I'm going to show you this today. I'm going to prove this by taking you to Scripture, taking you to the most prolific passage in the New Testament regarding glossolalia. You know, one of the things that if you, if you ever listen to wise old rabbis or scholars and you're looking to discover the true meaning of a word, they will tell you, well, go back. Go back to the first time that you see that word being spoken in the Bible. How is it used there? What is the context? Study it. And you build a foundation upon that, and you go from there. You continue your investigation after that. In the same manner, we're going to do the same thing with tongues. We're going to go to the first time that we find it being used in Scripture, which is the book of Acts, and you know what? We are going to build our foundation. We're going to study the context. We're going to study the elements that we see that were a part of uh, this manifestation. And so this will be our foundation, and then we will continue in the coming weeks to further our investigation. We'll build upon it. So with that said, let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, or this is the Greek form of Shavuot, 
Shavuot in Hebrew simply means weeks. And technically they call it the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks long. In the Greek it's called Pentecost. Pentecost being 50. It's 50 days. So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this gift of tongues, is it legitimate? Yes, clearly it is. You look at this, this is Scripture. We have biblical testimony here, a biblical witness that this gift is authentic. We find the disciples in, this, in, this, uh, uh, in Acts chapter 2. They heard. They didn't just hear. They felt it. They saw the whole event. They experienced the Holy Spirit. They experienced this outpouring. I want to draw your attention here in this passage to this imagery that we're given. Specific imagery. It's called tongues of fire. Tongues which were told here that had fallen upon each and every one of the disciples. I want to talk about this imagery a little bit because these tongues of fire, it's going to play a critical role in understanding the gift of tongues. And I mean a critical role. So you're going to want to pay very close attention today. Well, the first thing I want to point out here is that this imagery of tongues of fire, this wasn't imagery that was foreign to a first century Jew. This is something they were familiar with. Now, am I saying that it was a common thing for tongues of fire to fall upon men prior to Acts 2? No, that is not what I'm saying. Absolutely not. But, without a doubt, this imagery, okay, this imagery of tongues of fire, it was a concept that they understood. It was a concept that was familiar. Let me share with you some of the reasons that this concept was familiar to them. If we go back to 1947, there was a greatest archaeological find in modern-day history, something known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Nearly a thousand texts were discovered, manuscripts, uh, papyrus, fragments of documents were found there. It's like 972 documents were found in the caves of Qumran. All right? The scholars, they, 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 they date these things. This is very important you understand what I'm saying. They date these things to the time before Christ, okay? Anywhere from, from, from 150 to 400 B.C., these documents. What does this tell us? These documents that existed in Qumran were being read by the religious Jews in the first century. That's what it tells us. Something else about the documents you want to understand is 70% of them were called canonical documents. In other words, canonical meaning those documents are actually part of our Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. There would have been part, uh, uh, there was a complete manuscript found of Isaiah, for example, Yeshayahu. Okay, 70% of these documents are canonical. We consider them scripture today. But that's not all that was in these caves. Along with these, with these manuscripts and these fragments were also 30% of non-canonical fragments, or what we would call today extra-biblical fragments. Now, interestingly enough, we find that there were some fragments found among the Dead Sea Scrolls that would fall into the non-canonical category 
known as tongues of fire. This is critical. I want to show you these fragments, these tongues of fire fragments. But before I, before I do, I need to set the stage a little bit for you so that you have a clue as to what these fragments are actually talking about. Because forgive the pun, but these fragments are fragmented. Okay? They don't read fluidly. Okay? So I want to set the stage on this. Going back to the Torah, we find that the high priest, he dressed in a very specific manner. Torah is very explicit regarding exactly what the high priest was to wear. I'll put a picture up for you. Notice it's not jeans and a t-shirt. This is a very comprehensive attire. In fact, we're told this attire was for glory and beauty. The Kohen Gadol, the high priest, he was arrayed like none other. All right? You notice here he had a robe of blue. Under that he had a white tunic. Right? Up here, you don't see them. They're not posted here. But he had black onyx stones. Okay? He was just beautiful. He had a turban on top of his head with a crown of gold. It said, uh, uh, Kodesh La Adonai, or Kodesh La Yahweh, meaning holy to God. Okay? He was dressed like none other. A very comprehensive attire. One of the things that the priest bore was this right here. It's called the breastplate of righteousness, or Choshen Hamishpat. The breastplate of righteousness. And on that, there are 12 stones. Beautiful gems representing the 12 tribes of Israel. What you don't see here is that there is something on the back of this breastplate. There is a pocket a pocket that is said to hide over the heart of the high priest, right over his heart. And in that pocket were two oracle stones. These oracle stones are called the Urim Vatumim. The Urim Vatumim. Now, the Bible is relatively quiet regarding the Urim Vatumim. Not a whole lot is said about them. But we do know this. God communicated to his people through these oracle stones. In other words, he talked to Israel through the Urim Vatumim. All right? Key questions would be answered like, does Israel go out to war? They would consult the Urim Vatumim. Let me give you, let me give you a biblical example of this actually taking place. We go to the book of Nehemiah. We read the following. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy. But it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. Now, what is this talking about? It's basically this. We're at the second temple period, time period right now. And the priesthood is being assembled because they're going back to work. Okay? It's gonna, the priesthood is going to function. And we have men in Nehemiah here presenting, and I didn't put the list of their names here, but we have men who presented themselves and say, Hey, we're Kohanim. We want to serve. So what does he do? The gentleman goes to his list and says, you're Kohanim. And he starts looking up the genealogy of their names. You're not on the list. This is what's happening here. And because they're not on the list, listen to how they handle the situation. Verse 65, And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a Kohen could consult with the Urim Vatumim. So essentially, the Urim Vatumim, they were the avenues by which the Lord would communicate to his people. It was an avenue by which he spoke to Israel. So going back to the fragments found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
we're going to find some amazing commentary on the Urim Vatumim and tongues of fire. Okay? Now, the following passage, please remember, is fragmented. Okay? And it looks as though is that the passage is actually referring to the Urim being used to identify whether a prophet is true or not. I'm going to show you two fragments, one after another. The first fragment says, The stone. Remember the oracle stones we were talking about. The stone, just as the Lord commanded. And they shall give you light. Now, rabbinic tradition tells us this. This is a fascinating tradition regarding the Urim V'tumim. Rashi said that Urim V'tumim means lights and perfections. And when God would speak through these stones, there would be beams of light shooting out of these stones. Now listen to this, which was found in the caves of Qumran. They shall give you light, and it, the cloud, shall come forth with him, with it, with tongues of fire. The left-hand stone, which is on its left side, shall be uncovered before the whole congregation until the priest, the Kohen, finishes speaking. And after the cloud has been lifted, and you shall uh, observe and do all that the prophet shall say to you. Second fragment. The right-hand stone, when the priest comes out, three tongues of fire from the right-hand stone, from and after he goes up, he shall draw near to the people. There are two reasons that I wanted to share these documents, these fragmented fragments with you. Number one, I wanted to show you that tongues of fire was imagery, it was a concept that was not foreign to the first century Jew. All right? But more importantly, this is very important, I wanted to show you these fragments so that you could see the relationship that exists between the Urim Vatumim and tongues of fire. Because I want you to see here that the imagery of tongues of fire is representative of that of literally God speaking to his people in a supernatural way. And understanding this concept is going to be critical for you to understand and going forward in understanding the gift of tongues. So with that said, let's go back to our Acts account, verse 4. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. One sat upon each of them, and they were filled, all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we're told here in Acts that as these tongues of fire literally resting upon each of the, the disciples, what happened? What literally happened? Well, if you go into the Greek, we were told they spoke in tongues. That word in the Greek is glossa, or heteraeus glossaeus, in, 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 technically. What does it mean? What does glossa mean? It simply means a tongue, a language. At times, it could be used to describe a nation, but from the standpoint of distinguishing one nation from another nation by their speech. All right? So we find the disciples, they began to speak in what? Other languages. All right? Let's go to verse 5. And there were dwelling in Yerushalayim, Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. What is going on here? Why are there Jews from every nation under heaven in Yerushalayim? Because it's a pilgrimage festival. Remember, it's the Feast of Shavuot. Three times a year, Torah commands that all the men of Israel present themselves in Yerushalayim before the Lord on the Holy Convocation. Shavuot being a Holy Convocation. Three times a year, at Passover, at Shavuot, and at the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
goes on to say. So this is why all these men are here. Verse 6, And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together. Can you imagine? This is audible. I want you to think about the power of this event. It is audible. It was so audible. It wasn't contained to the disciples. There was a ruckus, this massive ruckus, and the crowd heard. And what are we told? They came together. If something were to blow up next to us, we would all be gathering towards it. What's going on here? In the same manner, it was this powerful. They all came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak. So here they're drawn near. Talk about baffling. They hear them speak in their own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all those who speak Galileans? In other words, these Jews from the diaspora, who are from the four corners of the earth, they knew that these Jews that were speaking, they were local. These are local boys. Why do we hear them speaking in our own language? Hence, why they're baffled, why there's total amazement. Now, these Jews that we see who, who are left in awe, they go on to say this in verse 8. How is it that we hear, each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So we see that the tongues of fire, this anointing of the Holy Spirit had come upon the disciples of Yeshua, and we see that they had actually spoke in a variety of different languages, essentially languages from every nation under heaven. Thus, these tongues which they spoke were what? Legitimate. They were actual languages which the Holy Spirit had given the disciples power to speak, which they would not have normally been able to do, beyond their capacity. The whole event was completely heavenly. It was supernatural. All these Jewish men from around the world heard the disciples speaking in their native language. And what did they hear? They heard the wonderful works of God. God was glorified in the whole event. Now, how do these Jewish men from all these different regions of the world, how do they respond to this miraculous sign? And it is miraculous. This is how they responded. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? These men are left in awe at what they've just experienced. They're not sure what to make out of all of this. They know what just happened. It's completely legitimate. They heard the disciples glorifying God in their own language, but they don't fully understand why this spiritual manifestation had taken place. Now, unfortunately, during this whole event, we find that not everyone who heard the disciples speak in tongues understood. And we know this because of the next verse. Others mocking said they are full of new wine. So in this display of tongues, in this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we find that not everyone that was there amongst the crowd necessarily understood as they spoke in tongues. It would appear that the majority understood, but not everyone who witnessed the event had the same experience. Might this be a valuable piece of information as we are building our foundation in understanding the gift of tongues? In speaking in tongues, I would submit, yes, 
In other words, if it happened in the first century, if the Spirit of God moved during that time, and there were some who understood, is it possible that there would be others who would mock? Yes. That could happen today. You need to store that in your mind as we continue. It's a possibility. And it's no different when Paul went out and preached. Read the book of Acts. And he went out to preach to the Jews. He was in synagogues preaching to both Jews and Gentiles. We're told over and over again, some of them believed and some did not. Is that happening today? When I speak, yes. Some people believe, some do not. All right? So in response to these men who, who are mocking the Apostle Peter, he rises up and addresses them in the following manner. He says in verse 14, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you, and heed my words. Verse 15, These are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. In other words, are you kidding me? It is 9 a.m. in the morning. We are not hammered. We just woke up. In fact, this is the time of prayer. The time of prayer during the day was 9 a.m. This was the time of the morning sacrifice. Powerful, spiritual time. Peter's like, you're kidding me, right? It is 9 a.m. in the morning. Verse 16. But this is what is spoken by the prophet Yoel, and it shall come to pass. Now, it's, it's so fascinating what Peter does here. What does Peter do here to legitimize this event that just happened to these mockers? Does he go on speaking in tongues? No. He goes to the Holy Word. He goes to the Tanakh. He goes to prove this event by the prophets. This is what was spoken by the prophet Yoel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. Now, jumping ahead to verse 36 for the sake of time. Therefore, Peter concludes, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Yeshua, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter goes on to tell them. Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized and the name of Yeshua Mashiach for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you shall receive what you've seen being poured out here. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. Verse 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his words... Were baptized. Doesn't say everybody. Says those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. So, Peter, after this gift of tongues is manifested among the people, we find he rises up. He goes on to explain to the people in a common tongue, whether you want to debate that's, that's Hebrew or Aramaic. Whatever, but he goes on to explain to his brothers in the common tongue what this supernatural sign meant. Thus, what do we see the result of this spiritual manifestation of tongues on Shavuot? What was the fruit of this event? 
The fruit is salvation. People received Yeshua as Lord and Savior. This was the fruit of the outpouring. And we're told 3,000, you want to talk about an impact here, 3,000 men that day accepted Yeshua as Lord. Now the number that we're given here of those who accepted salvation, it's quite interesting because it's the very same number that we're actually told that were killed among the children of Israel when they entered into covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Even more interesting, Jewish tradition tells us that the children of Israel had actually received the Torah. They had actually heard God speaking the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. When? During the festival of Pentecost. During Shavuot. Now, you have to remember, take yourself back to the event. Moses, he goes up to the mountain to meet with God to receive the tablets of stone, right? And as he's up there, what happens? The children of Israel, they begin to sin. They build a golden calf and they say, hey, this is the God that has brought you out of Egypt. They commit idolatry. So Moses makes his way back down the mountain, sees what's happening, breaks the tablets, and we pick it up in verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies... Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Interesting. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. Verse 27. In other words, what just happened? There was a call of salvation coming forth from Moshe. All those who are on the Lord's side, come here. Interesting parallel. Verse 27. And they said to him, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother. Every man his companion, his companion and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moshe. About 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So during the first Shavuot, we find 3,000 men were taken. They were killed. But as we come to the Shavuot in Acts chapter 2, the children of Israel, are as they're entering into the new covenant, 3,000 men are added. Now, if you take the time to investigate the Mount Sinai experience and what happened on Shavuot in Acts chapter 2, you're going to come across some fascinating parallels all over the place. Let me give you an example of one of them, and this one pertains to our subject matter. It's critical for understanding the gift of tongues. Again, according to Jewish tradition, we find that when Israel received the Torah, when they physically heard the voice of God, we are told that it was done so in the form of sparks. Literally, sparks being shoot out. Sparks of fire, flames of fire coming out. And not just that, but we're told in this, in this rabbinic tradition that as these sparks went out, they divided into 70 languages of the world. Sound familiar? This is exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. Let me show you this tradition. Our Yochanan said, What is meant by the verse, The Lord giveth the word? They that publish the tidings are a great host. Every single word that went forth from the omnipotent was split up into 70 languages. The school of our Ishmael taught, And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces, just as a hammer is divided into many sparks. So every single word that went forth from the Holy One, blessed be he, 
split up into 70 languages. Now, you need to understand, traditionally, the reason they're using 70 languages is because they were all the languages of the then-known world. It's powerful. Now, this tradition is further referenced in something known as Shemot Rabbah. And Shemot in Hebrew simply means Exodus. In other words, Exodus Rabbah. It is a commentary on Exodus. Specifically, what I'm going to show you is a commentary on Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. What is verse 18? It is the very next verse after the Lord gets done pronouncing the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The very next verse. Listen to this tradition. This is commentary on the verse. The Torah says, And all the people saw the voices. Fascinating. All the people saw the voices, plural. Note that it does not say the voice, but the voice is. Wherefore, Rabbi Yochanan said that God's voice, as it was uttered, split up into 70 voices in 70 languages so that all the nations should understand. How powerful is that? How peculiar, though. I don't know if you've ever read Exodus 20, 18. All the versions of the Bible read differently. They don't talk about necessarily voices. Let me show you. Exodus 20, 18, and, and again, whether it's NIV, New King James, King James, New American Standard, whatever version you have is going to read almost identical to what you're looking at on the screen right now. Let me read this passage to you. Exodus 20:18 reads as follows. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Reads a lot differently than this commentary, this, this rabbinical traditional commentary that we're given on Exodus 20:18. Are we potentially missing something? Could they be on to something in this beautiful translation where they talk about voices, seeing voices? Well, if we actually go to the Hebrew, you will find that it reads differently. I'm going to put the Hebrew up here for you. And for those of you in Hebrew class, you can read along with me quietly. Vachal ha'am. And all the people, ro'im, saw or witnessed at Hakalot, at Hakalot, when you look at this right here, this rut is kol. What is that in Hebrew? That is voice. That is voice. So when you say Hakalot, this is the plural, the ot indicates the plurality of it. The voices at ha lapidim. You know how this reads in the English quite literally? It reads this way. And all the people saw the voices and the torches. How powerful is that? This is amazing. What happened in Acts 2, literally, this is what we are experiencing by digging further into this. This is why it was not a foreign concept of tongues of fire. And what do we understand about these tongues of fire? It is the voice of God. You understand anything about this study, you need to understand that. Now, this is consistent in Scripture. Let's go to Psalms 29, verse 7. The voice, kol, again in Hebrew, the voice of the Lord divides, chotzev, okay? So when you see, see that divides, it's chotzev, it means hews out. 
it hews out flames of fire. This is what the coal, the voice of the Lord does. It hews out flames of fire. This is exactly what happened in Acts 2. You feel in the gravity, the power of this event. I want to point out, as we get into closing here, I want to point out five key points, critical points, which we need to be, which we really need to embrace here as we continue the study. This is kind of a recap of what we've done today. The first point, or the first thing we learned today, was that when the apostles spoke in tongues, they discovered what? That through the gift of tongues, God spoke to his people. Okay? Literally, all these Jews who were not believers in Yeshua had come to present themselves and they heard the miraculous and beautiful wonders of the living God in their own languages. We learn it was a miraculous sign, God speaking to his people. Secondly, the disciples spoke in an actual language, a legitimate language, a language that exists, a language which people understood, right? So the people heard it, they didn't all look around, and nobody had any clue what was being said. No, people, there were people there that did understand. But in relation to that, our third point, that what we found is when the disciples spoke in tongues, we're told that not everyone understood. Again, an important fact to consider today. If, in fact, you sit in the camp that tongues are relevant for today, and we'll be talking more about that next week, if you sit in that camp, you need to understand this. That there are going to be times there are going to be mockers and scoffers, just as when we go out and preach the, the gospel in plain English. The fourth thing that we learn, this is so important. God was magnified out of all of this. He was glorified, and it brought salvation to the hearers. In other words, when the Holy Spirit moves, make no mistake, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be fruit. The last point I want to make, the most crucial point out of all this that you need to take away is this. This was the work of the Holy Spirit, not man. So important. Now today, the music team can come up. Today was gentle, easy. We're just easing into this. But I can tell you, next week is going to be intense far more intense than what we covered today. So Shabbat Shalom.
It's the day 